Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. Dear God, help us to know your presence with us now. Help us to know the truth you have inspired in these words. And help us to live your truth in the lives you have so generously given to us. Amen. This is God's word from the book of Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet for the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I bring you greetings this morning from your brothers and sisters in Christ at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, where where I have now taught for the past 12 years. I also bring you greetings from my own church in a little town of Nashville in Brown County, Indiana. They also are worshiping at this very hour, and so we are worshiping God together. I hope that you are encouraged by these greetings. It's great to be here this morning, and I am especially grateful to your pastoral staff. They've been wonderful and faithful in planning this service together. You probably noticed that some of the the liturgy seems a little old. (laughs) We tried to include some elements of worship as if it were 1826. However, when I reminded your pastoral staff that the average length of a sermon in 1826 would have been about two and a half to three hours. (laughs) They decided perhaps that we shouldn't do that part of the 1826 service. (laughs) From the Gospel of Matthew comes our scripture text for the sermon, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 25. Jesus is telling a parable here. 
For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off and at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who received one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, where you did not scatter seed, and so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, didn't you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested the money with the bankers. And on my return, I would receive what was mine and with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For to all who have, more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning may seem like an odd choice of text for today's occasion. After all, we are here, at least in part, to celebrate the 190th anniversary of the ministry of First Pres in this community. And so, why Jesus' parable of the talents? Isn't that a text more suitable, say, for a sermon on stewardship? Beyond that, this text is a little bit like the Velveteen Rabbit. It's been handled and mishandled so many times that it's gone practically limp. It's hard for us to hear it anymore. Just say the opening line of this parable, and we all know where this one is headed. The man rewards the servants who who have invested wisely and condemns the wicked and lazy servant. And over the years, commentators have so fixed the interpretation of this parable in our minds, it's really hard to imagine that anything else can be said about it. It's a story of overcaution and cowardice, of neglected opportunity, a refusal even to try, worthless, one translation calls this third servant. Now, we might even go the opposite direction and read this parable as a condemnation of predatory capitalism. 
Maybe the man in this parable, the one who entrusted the talents to his servants in the first place, maybe he is some rich tycoon sitting on a large pile of money, and so he entrusts others to invest for him, and in the process they become his metaphorical slaves. So yes, this text may seem like an odd choice for today's celebration. But what I want us to realize here this morning is that Jesus isn't talking about money at all in this parable, at least I don't think so. God is not, as it turns out, some cosmic venture capitalist whose only concern is maximizing the return on God's investment. No, in fact, this morning's parable is about something far more important than money. It's about the gifts that God has given the followers of Jesus Christ to continue his ministry between his time on earth and his return at the end of the age. It's a parable about what we are to do to continue the ministry that he began, a ministry of love and forgiveness, a ministry of mercy and reconciliation. And so when we think about it this way, I don't think there could be a more appropriate text to celebrate the 190th anniversary of First Pres here in Ann Arbor. The parable of the talents is the third one that Jesus tells in connection to the second coming and the final judgment that God will pronounce on humanity. In most of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus paints a very grim picture of the end of the age to his disciples. He explains that there will be a great persecution. The Jerusalem temple will be destroyed. False messiahs will rise up and will deceive the people. And some modern authors have capitalized on these themes, and the writing of doomsday apocalypses have become a cottage industry. You don't want to be left behind, do you? Jesus describes all of this for his disciples, mainly to encourage them to be attentive to his promised return. He doesn't advise them only to hunker down and wait in inactivity. Instead, he encourages them in three parables to help them understand how important their ongoing work in ministry will be until he does finally return. Jesus does not want his followers to be like the unfaithful servant who mistreats his fellow servants while their master is away. He does not want them to be like the foolish bridesmaids who come up short of supplies at just the wrong time. And in today's text, Jesus does not want his followers to be like the servant who took the talent given to him and hid it in the ground rather than investing it and making it grow like his fellow servants. No, as his followers of Jesus in the time between his earthly ministry and his second coming, we also, like them, we have things to do. Today's parable is simple enough, really. A man goes on a journey, but before he does, summons three servants and entrusts money to each of them according to their ability to manage it. One receives five, the other two, and the last one receives only one talent. Now, just so that you don't miss the generosity of the man, a talent is an enormous sum of money. It would take an average day laborer in first century Palestine about 20 years to make a talent in wages. And so you do the math. The servant who was entrusted with five talents got about a hundred years worth of salary. Even the servant who only got one talent still got a tidy sum of money. 
Two of the three servants took their talents and went off and traded with them, the text says, doubling their money. The third servant dug a hole and buried a talent to conserve and protect it until his master returned. The day of reckoning finally came when the man returned from his journey. Again, he summons the servants to settle those accounts. The first two servants proudly come to report their fantastic earnings, and both of them receive praise from their master. Well done! good and faithful servant. Now, I'm not sure what the third servant really expected, and the text does not indulge our curiosity at all. It only tells us that when this third servant came forward, handed over his talent, he started making excuses. Well, I knew that you were a hard man. I knew that you reaped where you didn't sow, and so I was afraid. I was afraid. And so I went and hid your talent in the ground. Well, the master is is fit to be tied, calling the servant wicked and lazy. These are not words that any of us want to hear, especially from a superior. Take the talent from him, the master angrily demands, and give it to the one who has ten. And as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, and for the sixth and final time in Matthew's gospel, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, traditionally, this parable has been heard as an allegory, a word of caution to the early church. Jesus is seen as the landowner. The disciples were the servants. The talents represented the gifts of of Christ's mission. The time of waiting while the landowner is away was understood to be that period between Jesus' earthly ministry and his second coming at the end of the age. The message to the early church was this, while you're waiting for the Lord to return, don't put your light under a bushel, take risks, put the lamp on the lampstand, let it give light to all in the house. Don't be timid, don't be afraid to give all that you have for the sake of Jesus and his ongoing ministry through the church. In the end, those who have taken risks for the Lord's sake will be rewarded, and those who have failed to trust that the future is in God's hands, will be condemned. Now, as harsh as that sounds to our modern ears, you have to remember the theological worldview of Matthew's gospel. Humanity, including the followers of Jesus, are neatly divided into two categories, faithful and unfaithful, sheep and goats, good and bad. The lines are very clear, at least for the gospel writer. But this is a word of caution to the contemporary church, including this one right here. And I think that the key for us today is the claim, at least one of them, that the third servant made. It's very easy to gloss over, but I think it's key. The servant said, I was afraid. I was afraid. Now, I remember when I first learned how to ride a bicycle. I was maybe eight or nine years old, and for six months or more, I had been riding on that bicycle with training wheels that Dad had put on my bike. Carefully, I pedaled up and down the gravel driveway and occasionally fell right off of that bike, scraping my knees and my elbows. But I always knew, I always knew that I would be better off with those training wheels. I was afraid. But then one day, Dad took those training wheels off of the bike without telling me. I came home from school, I was ready to ride my bike, but uh, still I was afraid. Come on, Dad said to me, I'll I'll help you. He ran alongside of me until I gained enough speed and finally let go of the seat. 
And before I knew it, I was racing through the yard on my bike without training wheels to keep me steady, and I was no longer afraid. Perhaps more than anything else, fear is what keeps us from fulfilling our own possibilities, from doing what God calls us to do through Jesus Christ. The servant in this morning's parable was afraid. I was afraid to go it alone on my bike. A change of worldview was required, a change from fear to trust, from fear to faith, a change from playing it safe to being willing to take risks. Some years back, a colleague of mine wrote a marvelous essay entitled Fear in the Reformed Tradition. In this essay, she argues that, at least historically speaking, fear has lain at the heart of Presbyterianism and all related denominations in the tradition. Fear of the other has led many in the Reformed tradition to try to create perfected communities that avoid disagreement and difference. Fear of being wrong has convinced many that their doctrine is pure and perfect and that others, therefore, must not be. And fear of losing influence and being irrelevant has paralyzed so many in today's churches from saying and doing much of anything. Now, certainly you may quibble with my colleague's analysis here, but I really think that she's on to something. And what she offers as an antidote to fear is so simple that it's hard to imagine how anyone in the Reformed tradition could have forgotten It's a healthy emphasis on the grace and forgiveness of God. When we are truly convinced, as the psalmist says, that the Lord remembers how we were made, how we were made from the dust, then the Lord indeed is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Such a healthy emphasis on God's grace and forgiveness frees us to demonstrate compassion and kindness for the other. It frees us from our need to defend ourselves and our rightness, and it helps us proclaim and live the radical demands of the gospel, what it really means to be a disciple, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, it's no secret that the landscape of American Christianity is changing, and it is changing in profound ways, and it is changing very quickly. Mainline Christianity has been in steady numerical decline for almost a half century, and it is unclear whether some mainline denominations will even survive this generation. Meanwhile, evangelical and holiness Pentecostal Christianity has been growing and only recently has started to slow down in that growth. And the fastest-growing religious community in the United States are those with no religious affiliation at all. The nuns, they're called. Now, beyond this, there's no denying that denominational structures are also weakening. The capacity that they once had for organizing congregations and resourcing them for their work has diminished and will likely continue to do so. Their capacity for helping congregations cooperate in missions and social ministry and education and public witness, all of that continues to decline as well. And by 2040, the population of the United States will have completed a fundamental shift that started more than a generation ago. This nation of immigrants from Europe and their descendants will become a nation in which white is the racial minority. 
Persons of African, Asian, and Hispanic descent will outnumber white residents. Communities of faith that are unable to become culturally and racially amphibious will decline, and those that do succeed in this fundamental cultural shift will develop the capacity to thrive. And I don't need to tell you that this change is already happening and it's coming with conflict. Already we have experienced arguments over how expansive government services should be, how much of the population should be educated, and with what kind of education. The rising tide of racial violence in Ferguson and New York and Charleston and many other places. Surely, surely these things signal just how fierce this conflict can become. And what does all of this mean for the church? It will mean that new models of ministry will need to emerge in which cultural competence and deep Christian piety rather than knowledge and administrative skill will be the principal requirements. It will mean that patterns of institutional support will need to change because the old ones will no longer be there. It will mean that our congregations will look different, they will experience God differently, they will even worship differently than we do. It will mean that the church will need to see themselves as truly missional, doing what they do only because they believe God calls them to do it, no matter what the cost is. That one talent man in today's parable, he was not a bad or an evil person. He didn't lie or steal or, or kill anybody. His mistake, it seems, was living by the wrong creed. His creed was, hold on to what you've got, you don't want to lose it. Whenever concern for self-preservation trumps trust in God, then all of us are done for. But to act in faith, in spite of our fear, because after all, we're human beings, we can't help but be afraid sometimes, acting in spite of that fear, that's the secret, I think, to a life of faithful discipleship. This is the challenge that I think Jesus' parable of the talents offers us today on this 190th anniversary of First Pres here in Ann Arbor. It answers for us the questions, what are people of faith supposed to do in, the, in between times? What are we supposed to do to carry on the ministry that Jesus started until he comes again? Well, we are to accept with gratitude the gift, the responsibility of doing the work that Jesus calls us to do. We are to be vigorous about using the talents we have to invest in the kingdom of heaven because God promises to bless those efforts. And when the time comes, we joyously long to hear the word that God speaks to those who live faithfully, even in difficult times, well done good and faithful servant. And so I ask you, in what areas of our lives of faith, in the life of faith of this church, does fear continue to trump our trust in God? My hope and prayer for us is that we will all let go of that fear that we'll never be tempted to play it safe any longer and that will allow God to accomplish miraculous things through a faithful and trusting people. In the name of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
In our prayer today, when I say the words, Lord, in your mercy, please respond, hear our prayer. Lord, in your mercy, let us pray. Gracious God, we turn to you, our source, our sustainer, our help and hope and healing balm. We give you the prayers of our hearts and the burdens of our lives. Hear the voices of all who call upon you this day, especially those who come to you in desperation. Know each soul, each sinner, each saint, and look upon us all with tenderness, forgiveness, and love. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Empower the church this morning throughout the world in its life and witness. Even as we celebrate our journey together here, we are but one of so many communities of faith across your world that try with truth and integrity to live your word and share your love, serve and steward your creation. Each imperfect family of faith that gathers to worship you this morning has so much to celebrate. Most of all, your presence that guides, your spirit that surrounds, and your hope that lifts us up. Grant each body of Christ the knowledge that we seek and serve you together. Let us be united in our faith. Lord, in your mercy, you hear and see the world's hungry and suffering, and your heart breaks with ours. We ask you to intervene, but we also seek our own strength to change things and to lean on the strength that you give. Give us who consume most of the earth's resources the will to reorder our lives, that everyone would have a share of the food and the medical care and the shelter. In what we offer to you through the gift of time, talents, and money, let us not offer you offerings which cost us nothing. Lord, in your mercy, look with compassion on all who suffer. Support with your love those with incurable illness, those without hope, those who feel abandoned by you. Support and sustain caregivers. Comfort those who mourn and the many in our congregation who are experiencing grief. As you have moved toward us in love, so lead us to be truly present with those who suffer. As you have been merciful to us, let us be merciful to one another. Lord, in your mercy. Strengthen our belief in the good work you are doing now among us. Strengthen our ties to one another as we do that work. As we look back, keep us growing forward. O God, in your loving purpose, answer our prayers and fulfill our hopes. In all things for which we pray, give us the will to seek to bring them about for the sake of Jesus Christ. We pray the prayer our Lord himself gave us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.